That's again Philippians chapter 2, and we'll begin our reading there at the first verse. Hear once again the word of our God. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath also highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded, who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are, Christ, are Jesus Christ's. But ye know the proof of him, that as a son with a father, he hath served me in the gospel. Him therefore I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself also shall come shortly. Yet I suppose it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger, and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness, because that ye had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick, nigh unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I sent him therefore the more carefully, that when ye see him again ye may rejoice. And that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness. And hold such in reputation. Because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death. Not regarding his life. To supply your lack of service toward me. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. And may he bless it to us this evening. We are continuing. And in one sense concluding our theme on the eldership. And that really is the general theme that we are taking up this evening, but I want us to begin with a question. It's a question that comes to us from the prophecy of Isaiah, 
chapter 21. In fact, it's a question that comes to us twice from that text. Watchmen, what of the night? Watchmen, what of the night? The question is either, what time of the night is it? Or it's something more broad. And perhaps this is really the meaning behind it. Watchmen in the night watch. What do you see? The question, of course, is a question, a very basic one. It is, what awaits us? As you look in the horizon, as you look beyond, what is it that you see that may be coming towards us? And then secondly, implicitly, what shall we do about it? What awaits us? And what shall we do? Now, friend, you and I know, of course, that the world has their own coterie of watchmen. And all of them are being asked this question in their own way. Economically and politically, the answer is returned. Doom is on the horizon. The political pundits, economists, tell us only calamity awaits. And, of course, the world and their watchmen offer all kinds of carnal solutions. But our interest this evening is none of that. Our interest is primarily the watchmen that stand on Zion's walls. What are they saying? What what are these watchmen saying as they look at the horizon? And they're asked this question. What do they see coming towards us? And of course also, and perhaps most importantly, what counsel do they give? To see that in our own light, I think it's helpful first of all to look at that question in light of the context of the church in Philippi. The Philippians had a watchman. In fact, they had a principal watchman. They had the Apostle Paul. And he stood on the walls in Philippi. He stood looking at the horizon and he saw danger. He saw present danger and he saw impending danger. And so he writes this epistle. He sounds the alarm as it were. And the alarm is very basic. There are divisions among you. And the way the Apostle sees these divisions is it's really the the wedge's thin edge. It's already bringing destruction to the people of God, but it's also promising more. And so he writes. He sounds the alarm, but he does more. He also offers counsel. And that counsel is what you have here in the end of the first chapter and all throughout the second. The watchman cries on the walls. Let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. And here's the counsel. That ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's the counsel. That's the counsel that comes from the walls in Philippi. And then through the second chapter, he really exfoliates those commands. In the first four verses of chapter 2 that we read, the apostle gives us perhaps some of the most elegant lines in all the New Testament to reinforce this counsel. They must be those who are walking in unity. They must be those who are of the same mind, walking together for the gospel in the same spirit. But then he grounds that counsel in something quite profound. Verses 5 to 16 show us that the apostle has primarily in view the example of Jesus Christ. That is both the primary example, the exemplar, if you will, and also the ground for the counsel itself. But as you move through the second chapter, he also gives us other examples. You could really see three here. You see the Apostle himself in verses 17 and 18, doing that very thing, walking in love, walking, striving for the gospel. And then you have Timothy, another example. 
starting in verses 19 and going down to the 24th verse. Timothy, another example of that very thing. And finally, you conclude in the second chapter with Epaphroditus, the, the minister in the church in Philippi, as yet a third example of this very command. Now, beloved, as you look at this text, you see here a watchman who's assessing the horizon and also directing, giving counsel on how to avert it, how to eradicate it. And beloved, as he does so, you see here that he's reinforcing everything that he's said up to this point with examples. He gives commendation. He, he tells us that he's not only going to send Epaphroditus and, and Timotheus. He actually gives us further descriptions of the men themselves. Almost as though, as some commentators believe, he's defending himself for sending Timothy and Epaphroditus. But you see, friend, as you look at this text, you see what the apostle is doing quite clearly. He's setting before the congregation in Philippi examples of that command that came in verse 27 of chapter 1. That they must be those who are standing fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The apostle says, here you have lively examples of the very thing that you're commanded, counseled to do. And so as we look at this text, and our principal text here is verses 20 and 21, you have Timothy set forward as an example, and a normative example is that, at that. This is not merely a note, not merely an observation from the apostle. This is setting before the church in Philippi an example to follow, an example that is commanded. And you also see in this text, then clearly, that as he sends Timotheus and Epaphroditus, he sends them both as reformers and himself acting as a reformer for Philippi. He sees the danger, as it were, and here is his attempt to rectify it. He sends these ministers of the gospel to be and to stand as examples in Philippi of the counsel that he's already tendered. Now, beloved, I said that our theme is the eldership, and even though this text is really directed to the entire church in Philippi, office bearers and not, what you have here is a clear example of the fact that in the New Testament, the expectation is the minister of the gospel is to exemplify. The elder in the church is to exemplify that kind of spirit that was commanded in chapter 1, verse 27. And so that's the sense in which I want us to take it up this evening, albeit briefly. We see here in this text, as we look at Timothy, that an elder must be singularly devoted to Christ's cause. And I want us to see that under three headings. I want us to see that, first of all, as it concerns the matter of his labor. Secondly, the manner in which he conducts it. And lastly, the method which he takes as he executes his office. And so first of all, the matter, that which the man has said about. I want you to notice how the apostle describes Timothy here. Verse 19. Timothy is to be sent. He's to be sent in verse 20, and here's why. I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. Note how the apostle makes a contrast. This gospel minister that is being sent to Philippi, this presbyter, this elder in the church, is sent as one who is unlike so many others. So many others, says the apostle, are seeking their own. Now, our translators supply for us the word things there. It's not as impersonal as all of that. Simply, the Greek is, they all seek their own. But Timothy seeks 
the things of Jesus Christ. Or those things that belong to Jesus Christ. That trend is Timothy's great distinction. That is the matter of his work. He concerns himself with all of those things that pertain to Christ. And really the sense of this text is that Timothy is concerned about all of those things that encompass the cause of Christ. Whether they're material or immaterial. Personal or impersonal. All of these things, Paul says, are things that are primary concerns for Timothy. Now, beloved, as you look at this, you see here then a very clear example of what the elder is to be. He is a man who maintains the whole cause of Christ. Everything that belongs to Christ, the elder makes his primary work, his primary concern. And and friends, as you look at that, of course, we're thinking here easily in two terms. We can think of the people of God, first of all, and then the principles of the gospel, secondly. The division we shouldn't imagine is a hard one, but perhaps for our own sakes of meditating upon it, the division may be helpful. I want you to notice here, friend, that in Philippians 2, it is people that are the primary antecedent. As you're looking at this text, the apostle is dealing primarily with those who have been purchased by God, and those to whom Paul has ministered already. He says in verses 17 and 18 that his ministry is for them. It is for the service of their faith, says the apostle, that he's ministered. And so Timothy, of course, is one who is going to be concerned in the same things, concerned for the faith of the people of God. And you see, beloved, if you look at this text, you find here then that Timothy is a man who, like the Apostle Paul, looks at the people of God biblically, theologically, spiritually. In other words, whenever whenever Timothy looks at the church, he sees them as Paul sees them. And Paul says this, This church is that which Christ has purchased with his own blood. He sees it, in other words, as Peter sees it. This is God's heritage. He sees in this place the church is a temple built with lively stones, a spiritual house and holy priesthood. You see, friend, as Timothy looks at the people of God, he sees that in the people of God he can discern the cause of Christ. Beloved, as you look at this, You're supposed to understand that Timothy sees then the people of God as the most precious and holy people on earth. He sees them in many ways as the very personification of Christ's cause on earth. Paul tells us here that Timothy is like-minded with himself, of the same soul as the Apostle Paul. And these are the ways that Paul thinks of the church. Beloved, if you look at this text, Timothy is sent as an example. An example to be emulated by all, yes, but especially those who are called to be elders in the church. You see, friend, what you see here is a man who is devoted to the people of God in earnest. Note how the apostle describes himself. I mean, friend, you can't read this dispassionately. I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, says the apostle. For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Far from the impersonal and aloof elder was the apostle. Jealous over you with a godly jealousy. Earnest over you. Concerned intimately with your affairs. Says the apostle. And then the other apostle of course John. I have no greater joy 
It's a striking phrase, isn't it? I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. Far from being dispassionate. Far from standing away in his affections from God's people. He is earnest about them. Consumed with their well-being. And here Timothy stands as an example. But it's not only people. We'll come to this in a moment. But but it is also the principles of the gospel that Timothy stands unique in. You remember the initial exhortation is for the church in Philippi to stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. You see, friend, Timothy here stands for us not as an exemplar of humanitarian interests. He stands here as one who is turned, as it were, by the gospel. He's concerned about the people of God for the sake of the gospel. Calvin puts it this way, and I think helpfully. What you're supposed to understand when we think of this kind of relationship is that agreement of views, and Calvin is thinking theologically here, comes first in order, and then from it springs union of inclination. Such, it is, such is it in the case of the Christian church. Our unity in Christ, in the things of God, theological unity, says Calvin here, becomes then the springboard for this kind of love. For this kind of unity that the Apostle urges. And you see, friend, how this manifests itself in the ministers of the Gospel. Take John. John says, as I've just quoted to you, he doesn't say merely, I long to hear that you're all getting along well. He doesn't say that my greatest joy is just to hear that there is no strife among you. Note what John says. I have no greater joy. Note the emphatic. I have no greater joy than this, than to hear that my children walk in truth. It's a striking thing, isn't it? But here, says the Apostle, Timothy is like-minded. These are the kinds of things that 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 Timothy, with the Apostles, are concerned about. You see here, friend, they take Christ's words very, very literally. When he says to his apostles, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Well, friend, they allow no diminution there. They long to see all of the truth of God that belongs to the cause of Christ, as all truth does, to be known and adhered to by the children of God. This is something, too, that concerns the elder. Again, the Apostle writes in Philippians 3 to the same effect. His exhortation is this, Whereto ye have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. And again, friends, it's a striking thing. When you come to Philippians, you remember the Apostle's an imprisoned man. And yet note what he says in verse 2, chapter 2. He says here, Fulfill ye my joy. In other words, I have no greater joy. That ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Brethren, he goes on to write, stand fast, and hold for the traditions that ye have been taught, whether by word or epistle. Again, hold fast the form of sound words. Again, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Friend, what you see here is men who are concerned that reformation attainments are maintained. That the truths of the word of God are maintained in earnest. And you see, friend, that these two things don't stand contrary to one another. 
It's not that Timothy only has an interest in people and not in truth. Nor vice versa. He's not only theologically minded and impersonal in every other regard. In, in man, in these men particularly, these things are to coalesce. In the elder, a concern for all of the truth of God and a concern for all of the people of God are to be met. It's the example that Timothy sets before us. He minds the entire cause of Christ. All of those things that belong to Jesus Christ. In other words, friend, he is like the affectionate doctor. He's a man in many ways that is willing to give you all that is necessary to heal you, even if initially it's painful. He's not a people pleaser in that regard. He doesn't give you simply that which you think that you need. He, in other words, is a man who knows what is necessary for your good. And is willing to administer it. Even if it's not the thing that you desire. And friend of course these are the men that we are to desire. Not, not the pile men. Not men that are easily swayed by public opinion. Or even by the opinion of those within the church. But men who are really concerned about the things of God. Really dedicated to the things of Christ. A friend if that's his matter. That work that he takes up. It does bring us to the question of. What is the manner in which he does this work. And just very briefly. Friend, I want you to notice here, the Apostle describes Timothy in very affectionate words. He says here, if you look at verse 20, he says, For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. The word naturally there is really the word for genuine, at least in in our vernacular. But the word care is really the emphatic, the emphatic word in the text. The word care there is translated throughout the scriptures as anxious. One who has been given over incredibly to concern over this particular matter, whatever it might be. I mean, these are the very words that Christ uses in Matthew 6 to describe what man must not be with regard to tomorrow. He should not be this. And yet the Apostle describes Timothy in a godly sense as being anxious over the case of the Christians in Philippi. What you see here, friend, is a man who is exercised. In the cause of Christ. Timothy stands here as an example of one who is intimately and affectionately bound to the well-being of God's people. And to the cause of Christ in Philippi. And beloved, again, we find here an example. An example, or even you could say a principle. An elder must be affected in all things pertaining to Christ's cause. He cannot be dispassionate. He cannot stand aloof from these things in his heart. He must be one who is really and singularly devoted from the heart to these things. Again, beloved, you see, of course, the words of John. I have no greater joy. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. And why is that walk so much a concern to the elder? Why is it walking in truth that so much their concern? It's this. Christ tells us, as he prays to the Father in John 17, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. You see here, the elder knows, and he affectionately is acquainted with the idea that it is as they walk in the truth of Christ that then the people of God are kept secure. There they will find health. There they will find nourishment. And so he devotes himself in earnest to maintain the whole cause of Christ for their well-being. But beloved, if you look through this, the way in which this is done, 
Oh friend, it's, it's a deep thing. When you peer into the heart of the likes of the Apostle Paul, you see just how deeply this penetrated their inmost being. Note how the Apostle describes it himself. In spite of all of his burdens that persecution brought, in spite of all the afflictions that he knew, that he felt in his body, he writes this, at the end of them all, besides those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. That's the Apostle. He stands as a man whose heart is really concerned. In fact, he really says that this is the foremost of his concerns. Yes, he's been beaten and shipwrecked. Yes, he is, of course, always being chased by those Jews who hated him and even made vows to kill him. But that which really concerns him and burdens him most is the well-being of God's people. What's striking is, he says, Timothy is like-minded. The word like-minded there is of the same soul. Timothy, too, is a man who is burdened, really, by the care of the people of God. A friend, as we come to our third point, it's useful for us to think of the method. What is it, or how is it that he prosecutes his work then? Timothy here is going to be sent to the church in Philippi. And he says here, as you come to verse 23, him, therefore, says the Apostle, I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it shall go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. He tells us that he's going to send Timothy. And he tells us he's sending Timothy in place of himself for the time being as he awaits trial. But you see, as you look even beforehand, as you come to verse 19, he tells us the principal reason why he's sending Timothy in his place. Note what he says. He says, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. The sense of the apostle is very basic. He is sending Timothy to be an, instruct, an inspector, an observer. Now, at first brush, that doesn't strike us as being all that, all that strange. But meditate on it just for a moment with me. Timothy was a man well endowed with gifts. Gifts of preaching. Gifts theologically. He was evidently in the first and second epistles of Timothy, as they hold out to us, also a man who's given to the care of the churches. An eminent counselor, perhaps. And yet, when the apostle is going to send Timothy, this man who is well gifted, he sends him to Philippi, and his principal object is for Timothy to be an observer. I put that way, friend, it almost seems like, doesn't it, that all of his gifts seem to be wasted. Surely somebody else could go and observe. Let Timothy do the preaching. Let him do all of the instruction in other churches where they have need. But you see, friend, in this moment we're reminded that as Timothy goes, he goes because of his gifts, the most equipped, most able observer. You see, it's his gifting, actually, that makes him most apt to assess the church in Philippi and return to the Apostle Paul all of the news that is true, not that which only seems to be so. And you see, friend, as we close, this shows us also that an elder is to be a truly spiritual watchman. He is really to be a spiritual observer, inspector. I mean, this is precisely how the Apostle describes it in Hebrews 13. 
Obey them which have rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your soul. They are a watcher in many ways in the church of God. And in fact, it's even more emphatic throughout the New Testament. The word from which we get bishop, episkopos, comes from the word episcopeo. And that is literally to watch over, to view. That's literally what it means. And so, friend, as you look through those scriptures, as that word is used, note the, note the sense. The apostle again, Acts 20, 28, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, speaking to the elders in Ephesus, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. Yes, they're going to rule, but the very basis of their calling, in one sense, the very thing that describes them according to the scriptures, is this idea of standing and observing, inspecting. Again, 1 Peter 5.2, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, standing and watching. And friend, that brings us back to how we began, doesn't it? To the watchman. Timothy is here sent as a watchman in the church of God. And why? Beloved, a watchman requires constant attention. His gaze must never leave the horizon. A watchman must be a man who is mindful. He knows what is true danger and what is not. He can discern friend from foe. And he's a man who is conscious of the stakes. A man who knows that if he ceases to watch, a man who knows if he takes his gaze from the horizon, he knows the danger may be imminent. It's a striking thing that throughout the Old Covenant you do have the ministers of the Gospel described just as that, just as watchmen. Beloved, why is that? Just briefly, the reason for that is so very basic. The men that you and I are to long for in the Church of God are men who are going to be able to discern the real dangers that face the Church, like the Apostle as he deals with the Church in Philippi. Men who know what is the real need, the real concerns that come upon the people of God. Men who are inspecting lovingly and prayerfully the flock so that they might do them the most good. That's the kind of watchmen that we need. And beloved, as we close, such men we must be. Such men we need. But as I was Speaking with a few folks yesterday, not yesterday, but just a few days ago now, it does raise the question. And friend, this is a hard question, a question in which I have to include myself. A question that I think would be asked if our forebears were to be brought into the present. Where have such men gone? Where have such men gone? I include myself in that as I ought. But where are such men as we have in this text? Men who, as Timothy has described, do not seek their own, but only those things which are Jesus Christ. Men who are not only concerned theologically and so have their own theological hobby horses. Or men who are not just very, very good socially, but men who are really concerned about the cause of Christ in its totality, in its fullness. You see, friend, we are to be a people, especially as we come into elder elections, praying that the Lord would allow us to see such men.
Friend, if we don't have such men among us, I do believe that we do, I pray that we do, but if we don't have such men among us, it would be best that we called off the elder election, in my opinion. These are the men that we require for the good of the church. These are the men that we are to be praying for. Now, beloved, as we close, just a few thoughts. We see here in this text that this exhortation belongs to all of the people of God. And that leads us to the question, well, where shall we find such men? Where shall we ourselves find that God will be gracious to us and make us such people who, who do not mind our own things, but really the cause of Christ in its fullness? Well, beloved, this is the encouragement. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Where will we find men who will watch over our souls? It will only be through Christ. Only through Christ are such men made. As elders and office bearers in the church, our question should be, where can we find the grace to be made such men? Only through Christ. As members in the church, all under this exhortation, where shall we find the grace to be made such people? Only through Christ. Watchmen, what of the night? Watchmen, what of the night? Says the prophet. The answer is returned. And in part, the answer comes with the call. The call is return and come. Return and come. Which in short form is simply this. Return to God. Come to God. It's the same command, just put once positively, once negatively. The watchman, the true watchman in Zion is always going to give that answer. Though prosperity comes in the day and adversity in the night, the true watchman cries, go back to God as he's in Christ. And beloved, as we are a people who look to Christ for that grace as members to be conformed more into Christ's likeness, that's the very exhortation we need. Come once again to the Lord. Seek him through Christ alone. And find that he is a God who is gracious still to Zion, to his own. Amen.